Our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this edition are VFW National Home, Wildlife Rescue and Rehabilitation, Zero Prostate Cancer. To find out more about these and other BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving, and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today, we get to speak with one of my favorite people in the nonprofit sector, and that is Nancy Brown, who is the CEO of the American Heart Association. I've known Nancy for too many years to mention, (laughs) but she has done remarkable work as leader of that organization. And in fact, has spent the vast majority of her career working inside of the American Heart Association. So one of the things we're going to talk with Nancy today about is just that. What is it that has kept her so engaged in this incredible organization and has moved her through the ranks to its leadership? And also, we want to talk about the work that's going on at the American Heart Association Particularly, um, I was really interested in what happened after DeMar Hamlin's near tragic event and what the AHA did to pick up on that opportunity to educate people about the importance of CPR and other life-saving techniques that we can engage in. I just noticed that some amazing things were happening. I wanted to ask Nancy about that. And we'll find out how we're doing nationally with heart attack and stroke and social determinants of health and a whole variety of things that I know you'll be really interested in hearing from Nancy Brown, who is recognized as the point person on all of these challenges, health challenges that many of us face as chronic diseases, including myself. I've said to many of our guests before that I was diagnosed with with high blood pressure when I was 19 years old and have been on medication ever since. And I have to say, I'm really blessed to have had those medications and lifestyle alterations that have, for the most part, kept my blood pressure in check. But anyway, Nancy, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Hi, Art. It's so good to talk with you always, my dear friend. I think we go back decades, not just years. So, you know, we we won't age ourselves anymore, but it's been a long time. It's been a while. And I have to tell you, Nancy, that in that time that I've known you, you've grown in your career at the American Heart Association. 
I remember your predecessor, who's obviously a great friend of both of ours, Cass Wheeler, telling me about his impending retirement years ago. And I said to him, well, what are you going to do? Who's, what's going to happen at AHA? He says, don't worry, we have somebody lined up <laughs> that we know is going to be a great leader for AHA. He was always beaming about you and you have not disappointed. So anyway, Nancy, how did you get involved in, in the AHA? You've been there most of your career, right? I have been there most of my career. But, you know, here's a little secret. My involvement with the AHA started when I was about seven years old. Wow. You know, my mother was an avid community volunteer. Okay. And I have this vivid memory of walking our block to go door to door to raise money from the neighbors for what then was called the Heart Fund. And, you know, that was back when these neighbor to neighbor campaigns were really powerful. It's, you know, it was kind of the very beginning of what we now call peer to peer fundraising, right? Yeah. You know, someone on the neighborhood is recruited and you go visit all the neighbors and people gave money to the organization. And, you know, that was my first involvement with the American Heart Association. And my mother did that for years. She always Always had my sisters and I, uh, not all at once, some combination of us accompany her just as we did in volunteering in our church because, you know, she knew and understood the power of volunteer service and the power of donating. And so that's really been instilled in my mind for a long time. So I grow up a little, go to school, go to college. And I did come out of that experience with a focus on communications and marketing and had a couple of jobs before the AHA where I focused on fundraising and fundraising communications, if you will. But I came to the American Heart Association in 1986. So that's quite a while ago. And it has been a passion of mine ever since. And I can say when you can come to work every single day, knowing that someone's life will change because of the work that you're doing, a person you may never see or meet, but that you have a chance to impact people's lives so significantly. Why on earth would there be anything else to do in life but making a difference that way? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your mother, if you don't mind. Here, here was a, young, a woman at the time raising a family, but still found time to volunteer. Oh, yes. What was it about her that gave her that orientation? Well, I I can't say for sure, but here's what I would guess, because sadly, my mother passed away uh, 12 years ago. But you know what? I think as she was raising her family, she was the only child of the main physician in the community that we, you know, the surrounding area that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, my grandfather and grandmother were constantly this focal point of getting people involved in healthcare and getting people involved in the hospital where my grandfather was the chief uh, medical officer. Mm -hmm. And I think that just became part of, of who she was. My mom also loved people mm. and she loved making a difference. She was also my nursery school teacher at our church. You know, I have all these great pictures. Uh, whenever I see my old friends uh, from Michigan, I have all these little pictures of us and we were three and four and five. We were nursery school mates. And there's my mother right in the middle. And she was the teacher of the nursery school class. There are people that are blessed with having that gift of engaging other people and being passionate about service. And, and that really was my mom, my father as well. But, you know, he was working a lot. And so my mom really carried that banner in our family. Oh, that's terrific. Well, you know, I, um, 
as most people were, we were watching this football game and uh, my, my father-in-law, who is an avid Cincinnati Bengals fan, we're watching the game. And the next thing you know, this young man from the Buffalo Bills is laying on the ground, laying on the field, and uh, there's a break in play, and we're not sure what's going on. And I think at one point, you know, we were really concerned about whether he would ever get up off the ground. And uh, as most of us now know, uh, DeMar Hamlin did. And it seems to me, Nancy, that it sparked something in uh, the leadership at the AHA to get us all more focused on the importance of CPR. And I was really interested in hearing from you about that. What what happened over at AHA? What what changed in the organization to get us thinking about this? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the question. And it's probably important to mention that for decades, the American Heart Association has written the scientific guidelines for CPR Mm -hmm. and first aid that are the standard of care. We convene with international organizations to make sure there's consistency worldwide. And we have done training and CPR education and awareness for decades. And of course, when the world saw Damar Hamlin's cardiac arrest on Monday Night Football, that mission of ours that has been so important to the AHA for so many years really came into action. I remember exactly what I was doing at that moment. I was sitting at my home with my husband watching Monday Night Football, and I was also pecking away on my computer doing something. And I got a bing, a text message from one of my board physician board members. He's like, are you watching Monday Night Football? And I wrote back and said, yes. And he's like, are you really watching? And so I looked up and saw what was happening. And what I have to say is what the world saw when they saw DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest was everything happening exactly the way it's supposed to in terms of the chain of survival working. We have this concept that that we have talked about for years about the five steps in the chain of survival if someone has a cardiac arrest. You know, early recognition, someone has to recognize you're having that cardiac arrest. They have to then call 911. You have to have first responders on the field ready to jump into action. You have to have access to a defibrillator and then, of course, be transported to a healthcare system where you can get high quality healthcare. And that's what happened for Damar Hamlin. What a horrifying and tragic moment that was that actually turned into an illustration of what needs to happen so that every person who has a cardiac arrest can have the same chance at life. And sadly, that's not what happens in our country today, Art. There are just shy of about 400,000 people a year who suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. That means they're in their community, they're playing football, they're at their company, they're grocery shopping, they're walking down the street somewhere not in a hospital, 400,000 people a year just shy of that suffer a cardiac arrest, and fewer than 10% of those people survive. Wow. Let me just say that's one in 10 people survive an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And so it has been our life's work to change that statistic. And I think that Damar Hamlin's cardiac arrest has both raised awareness and his personal passion to make sure that everybody gets what he got 
and that's high quality CPR and access to an AED because he's focused on that being a reality. We're really able to change the trajectory of of people's care and their outcomes. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. He's been obviously very visible. You all have been extremely visible on this issue, which I'm really happy to see. And I know a lot of the supporters of the AHA are obviously very happy to see that as well, because that's tangible, in my opinion, tangible evidence of the importance of the work that you do. And I think that for anyone trying to consider where to put their donated dollars, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for tangible evidence. And saving a life can't be any more tangible. (laughs) That's as tangible as it gets. You've got it. I mean, exactly. It's like immediate cause and effect. And here's the thing, Art, everybody can learn CPR. Like there is the very formal training courses that we and others offer that, of course, we encourage people to take. But if you see a person who's having a cardiac arrest, there are things that can be done if you've received zero training. Mm -hmm. You know, the first and most important thing you need to do is to yell to someone to call 911. If someone else is with you, you say, you in the blue shirt, call 911. And if you are the first responder, you start pressing hard and fast in the middle of the chest Mm -hmm. to the tune of the song, Staying Alive. You know, the BG song, Mm -hmm. Staying Alive. That song has 110 beats a minute, which is the rate at which you have to administer CPR. And then you must start doing CPR before you use an automated external defibrillator. You cannot just put a defibrillator on a person if you have not started doing CPR. So any of us can be a lifesaver at any moment. And we encourage people to come to the AHAheart.org slash CPR and learn hands-only CPR. And this is one of the messages DeMar has been working on with the American Heart Association is making sure that everyone everywhere knows this life-saving skill. Yeah. And it's something that we can all do. So mention that again. You can go to where now and learn this? Heart.org slash CPR. And you can learn hands-only CPR. There's a quick two-minute video that shows you how to place your hands. You have to press really hard Mm -hmm. um, if you're administering CPR, and it shows you that level of depth to give. But it can save a life. And we have heard over many, many years, and certainly since DeMar's incident, of many people whose lives have been saved by a bystander conducting CPR. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks after DeMar's event, one of our own staff people was on a walk in their community and saw a person suffer a cardiac arrest and was able to save their life. You know, so this is any of us could save a life at any moment. That's terrific. Nancy, you know, you, you not only do that, obviously you're involved in a lot of things around saving lives and coming up with interventions that help people with chronic disease challenges. How are we doing now with heart attack and stroke? Yeah. How are we doing? Well, there's a good news, bad news story. For decades, the death rates from cardiovascular diseases and stroke 
have been on the decline, especially in the 70s and 80s, where we had a lot of new medical advances Mm -hmm. in technology, you know, surgeries, stenting, as well as innovations in drug discovery, like statins, things like Mm -hmm. artificial valves and pacemakers. All of that came about Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s. You yourself, you know, started out the show talking about your blood pressure and your Mm -hmm. blood pressure medication. These great advances allowed death rates to decline. They're now on the rise again. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, there are a couple of reasons why. First of all, it's it's important to know that 80% of heart disease is preventable. It's Mm -hmm. your lifestyle that makes a big difference. So things like not smoking, making sure you're taking your medications if you are so prescribed for blood pressure, blood cholesterol, blood sugar, getting enough exercise, making sure that your body mass index is appropriate, getting enough sleep. These are what we call the essential eight elements of preventing your risk for having a heart attack or a stroke. So that's important. The social determinants of health really matter too. Individuals who don't have access to high quality health care, who don't have appropriate levels of access to physical activity, people who are being marketed to by sugary beverage companies and tobacco companies. You know, these are addicting generations of children and families to poor lifestyle. So that none of that is helpful as well. And then, of course, during COVID, there were people who didn't stay on their medications, people who didn't see their doctors as regularly as they should have. But this is the mission of the AHA. We are working hard to change this. We're doing a number of things to change this trajectory uh, back around. Mm-hmm. What are some of the newer things that you're trying to do in this new era of uh, both scientific discovery and obviously new challenge? Yeah. Well, in science and research, which is fundamental to the core existence of the AHA, we're focusing on what we call health equity research networks, where we're putting big chunks of money into studying certain topics. Mm -hmm. So one of the topics is health in rural America. We've just put $20 million into studying that topic. We've put another $20 million of our research budget into the prevention of hypertension. Hmm. Um, And that's really community-based approaches to managing hypertension, identifying and managing hypertension. Since almost 70% of people in this country at some point or another in their life will have elevated blood pressure. We also have put another $20 million into maternal mortality, which is such an important topic for cardiovascular disease. So that's like one thing we're doing in our research funding. In our community solutions, especially focused on the social determinants of health, we several years ago, we started a social impact fund, which invests in local social enterprises working to break down the barriers to health inequity with solutions that improve access to health care, provide nutritious foods, and create a more equitable environment. And we started this fund about five years ago. We already have more than 100 investees that we're investing in across the country. And so that's really important. And maybe the last thing I'll mention is a new initiative we announced just a couple weeks ago with the Rockefeller Foundation called Food is Medicine. Mm. We believe strongly that access to healthy food 
when prescribed by a healthcare provider for people at high risk should be reimbursed, whether it's on our public insurance programs like Medicare and Medicaid, or whether it's on through private insurance companies, it should be reimbursed like drugs are reimbursed. And so the barrier to that is the definitive evidence that proves that when food is integrated into the healthcare system like drugs, that it can both be cost effective as well as improve risk factors and health and well-being. So we intend to pr- prove that and provide that evidence. And that's a new initiative AHA and Rockefeller Foundation are leading together. Well, I know you all are involved in numerous collaborations. And when you start talking about the social determinants of health, you really are talking about collaborative undertakings because we may find a medical intervention that helps a person get through an emergency like CPR, for instance. But if they're not generally well informed about what happens next, or if they're living in a zip code that doesn't have the right food, or, you know, there are numbers of things that keep people, keep people from living fulfilled lives and full lives. As I know that's part of your mission is to make sure that we live long and healthy lives. And, you can't just do that focusing on one thing. You have to look at a whole host of things that people encounter. And so what are some of the collaborations that you all engage in, Nancy? I noticed one with corporations, in fact, that seem to have an impact. One focused on gathering together CEOs from at least 50 Fortune 500 companies how do you feel that that it can help and can be helpful in dealing with some of the things like social determinants of health, for instance? You know, thank you so much for that question. Our collaboration really is a centerpiece of the strategy of the AHA. We believe that there's power in doing things with and through others. Mm-hmm. And so our CEO roundtable that you mentioned is a wonderful power collaboration of about 50 CEOs from large influential companies in America. And they're not healthcare companies. A few of mm-hmm. them are, but most of them are corporations with CEOs who really are determined to provide an environment in their companies where health and well-being and resilience and fulfillment can be a centerpiece of the strategy for their their employees and their customers and their communities. Mm -hmm. And so it's important because about 130 million people go to work every single day. And our CEOs have a huge opportunity to both set a tone at the top, but also to influence the ways we think about health and well-being in companies and in our communities. And so these CEOs are doing things like focusing on health equity in the workplace. What does it mean to have an equitable and just workplace for our employees? How do we make sure that everyone knows and understands you know, medical and health care benefits in their company? A lot of times these documents come out and emails come out that are not necessarily serving up information to the people who might need it most in companies. And so we work on those issues. We work on issues like mental health and resilience and making sure that we understand the types of environments that provide the most enriching experience for our employees. And also how do we create the services within companies that allow people to have access to in this example, mental health resources or even healthcare resources overall. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to one of our CEO members last week 
And he was telling me that they just, in a place where they have a lot of factories, just opened an on-site primary care clinic. And the focus of that on-site primary care clinic is to serve people who find it really hard to have time off of work to go home, pick up their child, take them to the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. They're able to provide that service right on site. Now, that is something that not every company can do, but it's an example of innovation in the system. Uh, We have a meeting coming up in June where we'll be talking about things like artificial intelligence in healthcare, how what should we be looking for? And are there some innovations on the horizon that can be helpful to employees and to companies? So it's a really great collaboration. We're very proud of our CEOs and the fact that they lead the way in addressing some of the most challenging issues in health and well-being in this country. Nancy, uh, a former mentor of mine used to say, and he lived to be uh, 95, he used to say to me, if I had known I'd lived so long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> he might have lived to 105. You know? <laughs> right, you know. But I, I, he obviously had uh, a pretty good lifestyle, and that was mostly in jest. But it is true. I mean, what we do today, you know, not only affects how long we live, but the quality of our lives. And I know that part of your mission is to not only have us live long lives, but to live lives that are of a, of a good quality. And so, you know, I wonder what your message is, what the American Heart Association's message is to folk who are maybe, you know, you're 30, 40 years old. You're not thinking about, I'm going to live to 90, but, you know, maybe I'll not be healthy. (laughs) You know, you're thinking they're going to be the same as they are when they're 90. But you may be 90 and, and, and a vegetable if you're not taking good care of yourself. So, I think my message would be that health is wealth and your health is in your hands and that there are big things and little things you can do every day to put yourself at the center of your life. And being healthy makes you more energized for life. Things like getting enough sleep are really important to your health and well-being. Getting enough exercise. You know, if you're doing nothing today, you can do a little something tomorrow. You know, this isn't like a light switch that you either do it all or you do nothing. Every little incremental change you make in what you eat and how you exercise, how you sleep, not using tobacco, like these are all things that set you up for a life of joy and resilience. Because I think more than anything, what people want is they want more time with their loved ones. They want to be able to do the things they enjoy doing in life, whether that's dancing or working or serving their faith community, whatever it might be, those things you get when you have health. And when you don't have health, those things aren't necessarily yours to the same level that they could be. And so, you know, that's why we encourage people to focus on their health and well-being. It's really an investment in yourself. Nancy, let me ask you a personal question about your leadership style, because no one can be in a role that you're in leading an organization that is into the several billion dollars of revenue and and leading us in a health area that is so vital to our nation's health in terms of keeping people viable 
you don't get this opportunity and you don't stay in it very long unless your leadership style really works well to the task. What would you say are some of the keys to your leadership, Nancy, that others might want to consider in, in, in adopting in their own leadership style? Well, thank you for that question, Art, and, and for that recognition. You know, to me, it's a couple of really key things. Hire the best people possible and make sure that it, that things are very clear in terms of where the organization is trying to go and what needs to get done. And then get out of the way and let these great people do their job. And I will say proudly at the American Heart Association, we have an amazing staff team and amazing volunteers. And our staff have many years of service. They are dedicated to our mission and they really lead with purpose and they lead in a pretty autonomous way to get done the things that need to to get done. So that would be number one. And I think the second and really important thing in the kind of work that we do is relationships really matter. Mm -hmm. And you see that when the going is good, but you really see it when the times are tough. When if you have dedicated your life and your purpose and your organization to building strong, meaningful, lasting relationships, not transactionary relationships, but lasting relationships. People are there for you when you are there for them. And I would say that those are two things that would matter to me. Okay. So I got two last questions. The first question has to do with what we started out with, you being at the American Heart Association for these decades now. What has kept you there? Two things, without a doubt, the mission of the AHA, every day you come to work realizing that you are saving people's lives and that there is a sense of community relationships with staff and volunteers and a shared mission and purpose. That's number one. And number two, as the American Heart Association almost turns 100 years old, which we will turn in 2024, the hallmark of the AHA is innovation and the hallmark of the AHA is impact. And boy, you know, do we put those on display every single day. And that's fun when that is the approach to getting the job done. So that was going to be my second question about innovation and what do you see in the future for this organization? What are you trying to leave here? What are you trying to prepare the organization for one day when you're no longer around? I think that strong organizations have to be able to both weather and lead change at any time. So to me, that's about the fabric of who an organization is and who the leaders are, because changes come and go. Boy, have I seen a lot of them in my years. I was chief operating officer when 9-11 happened. I was, the day I became the CEO of the AHA is the day the stock market plunged to 6,000 in the year 2008. We obviously lived through COVID. And so organizations have to be built to last. And that is the name of a book, but I don't say it for that reason. You know, organizations have to be built to last. The people have to have the strong foundation of purpose and mission and values and relationships. And then you can make your way through and lead through anything. So to me, that is part of the core that I 
hope whenever there is a, a, another leader at the AHA that they will appreciate that as much as I have appreciated it. And then secondly, my gosh, we're on a technological revolution and I'm excited for what all this technology can mean to science and healthcare, for the way that we identify people at risk and serve them, the way we think about our impact in global markets. All of these things are on the horizon for the American Heart Association and we couldn't be more proud to be able to serve our mission in this really challenging and inspiring environment. Well, thank you, Nancy. And we're lucky to have you in this role and have had you in this role for these many years. And I want to just wish you continued success and find ways to support you any way that I can. I hope you'll reach out and let me know if there's ever anything I can do. Although I'm sure uh, given what you have at the AHA, there's not a whole lot. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's hard. far far from the truth, Art. You know, we we reach out to you and your great organization all the time. We so value our partnership. We're proud to have been an inaugural member when the seal was created. That's what one of the highlights, and we would display with pride yeah. our Wise Giving Alliance BBB seal at the American Heart Association. So, thank you for being such an inspiring leader and such a good friend. We we appreciate you so much. Well, thank you. Well, let me just say to all of our listeners, you've just heard from, in my opinion, one of the leading CEOs in the nonprofit sector. And if she weren't in the nonprofit sector, she'd be a leading CEO of a corporation or or, uh, maybe president of the United States or something. I don't know. But she's a remarkably talented and dedicated woman. So this was a gift to have her here. And I want to say to all of you, if you're listening for the first time, this podcast is a weekly show. And if you care to, you can check out um, at least 130 more episodes. I hope you'll subscribe to the show. And if you want to support the Heart of Giving podcast, you can do so by finding us at give.org where you can make a donation and we would put, put that donation to great use. So thank you all for listening, and we'll find you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBBY's Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.